The average age in here just went up by 30. <laughs> Bye-bye, children. If you don't know who I am, my name is Utah. I have uh, the distinct privilege of getting to serve as the youth minister here, and so most of my time is spent with young people as well as the leaders who serve alongside of me. But this morning, uh, for reasons unbeknownst to me, uh, I have the privilege of opening up God's Word to you. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. If you are looking at the Bible in the pews in front of you, the black Bibles there, it is on page 944, page 944. So we're going to be looking at Romans 8, verses 18 through 25, and if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. This is what it says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. For the sake of your legs, you can sit down. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. And we together as a people confess our need for you. We need you to come and to meet with us. We need you to minister your word to us. We need you to be gracious and merciful to us. And not only this, Father, but we need you to uphold us and to sustain us. Father, it says in your word that your son upholds all things by the word of his power, and so we just recognize our need for you this morning. Please work in our hearts and in our lives. Please do what only you can do. And please help me as the preacher. I am keenly aware of my own weakness, and therefore my need for you to help me. So help us all, Father. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Empty platitudes are a thing that we often hear in everyday language and everyday speech in our culture. Empty platitudes are those statements that we say that are quite trite or meaningless in order to ease the tension or ease the discomfort of a social interaction. Okay, so let me give you some examples. Um... Let's suppose that one of your friends uh, breaks up with his girlfriend of two years, 
and the first words out of your mouth are, well, don't worry about it, man. There's, there'll be someone better. Um, or we, we hear this often in our culture surrounding death and funerals, around the passing of loved ones, without any reference to where the person is at spiritually, without any reference to what he or she believed, without any reference to how he or she lived their lives, we say something like, well, they're in a better place. Or perhaps someone's going through uh, an extremely difficult trial, whether it be because of job loss or financial loss or a host of other reasons, and we say something like, well, keep, just, just keep your head up and you'll get through. Um, or maybe a friend divulges his pains and his sorrows to us and we respond with something like, well, everything happens for a reason. Um, or perhaps someone that you love uh, or you yourself are going through a sickness or an illness and um, without really knowing the situation, someone just comes up to you and says, oh, I know you'll be okay. You'll make it through. Empty platitudes are everywhere in our culture. They're everywhere in our speeches. And what's surprising is that it seems that Paul offers an empty platitude himself in our passage just at first glance. Look with me to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, at first glance, that seems like an empty platitude. What Paul's saying is that, hey, look, listen, your hardship, your trial, your suffering, the pain that you're enduring right now, hey, listen, it's small. It pales in comparison to what's in the future for you. Um, it's, it's really a short thing. It's really insignificant when you com- compare it to the grand scheme of things. And it sounds like an empty platitude that we would offer, but it's not. And so for the remainder of our time, I want to give the Apostle Paul the opportunity to explain to us and prove to us what he means by the statement that he makes in verse 18, because at first glance, it seems like it's one of the empty platitudes that you and I would offer. But it's far from it. You see, Paul had thought deliberately. He says, I consider. He had thought rationally, and he had thought reasonably. In light of the gospel, he had thought about his own sufferings. He thought about the sufferings of Christians. And he's saying, hey, listen, I've thought about this. And it's true, if you took your hardship and your suffering and your pain and you looked at your life with, with a myopic focus and, and that's all you had going on in your mind and in your focus, then you will be overwhelmed and you will become unraveled. But what Paul's saying is, hey, listen, I've done this. I've taken a step back and I've, and I've taken a look at the entirety of history and the entirety of eternity in light of the gospel. And when I look at it in the grand scheme of things, then the sufferings that we undergo in the here and the now seem small in comparison. What Paul's saying is that, yes, the stars and the moon shine brightly at night, but as soon as the sun arises, those fade into the background. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that when we consider and when we meditate upon the glory that is to be ours in the future, our present difficulty and our present sufferings fade into the background. Okay, that's what Paul's claiming right from the outset, but you can't say something like that without proving yourself and without arguing for and without explaining it, and so that's what I would like for us to hear from the Apostle Paul this morning. So there's really three headings to our sermon. The first heading is this. Hear the groaning of creation. Hear the groaning of creation. And what Paul does here is that he personifies the creation. He gives to the creation feelings and longings. 
And what Paul wants to, to do is he wants to describe the feelings and longings of creation about its present state. And if Paul was just given one word to describe how creation feels about life right now, he would use the word groaning. And um, so the, what the creation is doing is that it's growing, groaning together like a masterful orchestra, playing under the command of one director, playing one unifying theme and song, and it is groaning about its present condition. And if Paul were to um, bring up one picture to depict how creation feels about its present situation, he'd actually go to the maternity reward. I'm not sure if you saw that in our passage. He speaks of a woman who is in labor and who is experiencing excruciating and exceptional pains immediately before the birth of her child. And so this is how Paul describes how creation feels about its present condition. Groaning and labor. Okay? Um, and there's a reason why creation feels this way. In verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility. And the idea here is that the creation was put under the control and influence of futility. To put it very simply, um, creation is no longer able to fulfill the purpose for which it was made. Thus, it feels as if its existence is meaninglessness and purposeless. Think with me of a boxer, okay? Like um, the guys that punch those boxers, okay? So you think of a boxer who... Um, has been training since the time that he was in junior high. He has the build for it. He watches his nutrition and his fluids so that he's able to perform at his optimum. Uh, he gives all of his spare time and all of his energy and resources in order to train. And let's imagine that boxer showing up on the day of the fight. Okay, he has all the potential in the world. He's brimming with potential. But let's suppose that as the fight is about to begin, someone comes up to him and chains him up ties his arms behind his back. And thus, with all the potential in the world, the boxer is hindered, he is hampered. And what Paul is saying is that the creation is like this. The creation has all the potential in the world, and yet it is not able to live up to its full potential. It is not, it is not able to function at full capacity, and thus it groans and it longs. But the creation has not just been subjected to futility, it is also in bondage to corruption. The word bondage is an imprisonment term or an or a enslavement term. And what Paul is saying is that the creation, not because of what it did, but because of what we did in rebelling against God and because of God placing a curse upon it, the creation is subjected to, it's imprisoned to, it's enslaved to this perpetual process of decay, death, decomposition, um, and uh, just unbecoming. Okay, so the creation is in this process of moving from wholeness to brokenness, from moving from health to sickness, from moving from order to chaos, and from moving from death to life. Okay, just to give you a few quick examples, earthquakes and tsunamis devastate, snakes are poisonous, animals kill each other for food, droughts cause massive starvation, species become extinct, and floods destroy homes. Okay, um... There is this inescapable reality in the creation that all, thing move, all things move towards decay, and all things are headed towards death, and all things are subject to decomposition. And as human beings, and, as, and, as, and even in the animal world, all of us are subject to, we're not immune from, disease. 
And so creation groans in its present state. Creation groans in the pains of childbirth because no matter how long it endures or how hard it tries, it cannot escape this dreadful reality. And so creation longs for something better and longs for something more. Perhaps that's something that you can relate to. One of the things that I think in life that would be like the scariest experience for any human being to go through would be to be on death row. Okay, so I'm not sure if you're twisted like me and have thought about that, but um, I just think that that would be an extremely scary set of circumstances to find yourself in. Uh, Death is certain, uh, and death is coming soon, and there is no hope for escape. To the contrary, if you think of a person who has being given, let's say, a 10-year sentence in prison. Now, that would be a miserable thing, but nonetheless, uh, death is uh, not coming, and there is also hope for release or for escape. And so we would say that if you compared the two, the person on death row has no hope, while the person with a life, or not a life sentence, but the person with a limited sentence has hope. He has hope for release. And what Paul wants us to know in our passage is the creation is not under, it's not on death row, but it's being given a limited sentence. Look with me to verse 20 of our passage. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay? And so what creation understands in a personified, metaphoric way is that it will one day be set free. It is not on death row, but it's being given a limited sentence. And so just like the yogurt in your fridge, the the curse upon creation has an expiration date. Okay? And so creation longs for the day when the curse will become expired. So when will that happen? Well, our passage talks about it and says that it will happen when the sons of God are revealed. Okay, I want to just explain this and just kind of blow it up a little bit just so we can get the context. Um, You will remember that in the very beginning uh, of the Bible that the creation became cursed not when angels fell and rebelled against God, but when humanity rebelled against God. Okay, do you remember that? So as man fell, creation fell, and as man was cursed, creation was also cursed. Let me put it this way. God designed it so that intrinsically tied to the fate of uh, creation is the fate of humanity. Okay? So creation understands that, that in order for it to be restored, man must be restored. Okay? Man fell, creation fell, man was cursed, creation was cursed. And so for creation to be restored, for creation to be released, then people need to be released, then people need to be restored. And so that's what creation looks forward to. Okay, why is that significant for us? Um, because, because of this, okay? The entirety of the creation through all parts of history and in all parts of the globe has been waiting for one singular event, okay? The creation is not waiting for disease to be eradicated. The creation is not waiting for some war to end. The creation is not waiting for some environmentally conscious policies to be adopted. The creation is not waiting for you and I all to drive electric cars The creation is waiting for one singular event, and that is this. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Okay, do you hear what Paul is saying? If you're a history buff, or even if you're not, you can just imagine all the things that 
it would have been cool for you to be at in the history of the world. All the events that you could have, that, that, that if you were in control, that you could have been at and observed, and that would have been so cool for you to be at. And yet, this passage says the creation longs for one event and one event only, and that is for your redemption and for mine. The day that you and I will be fully redeemed by the grace of God as we enter into the new heavens and new earth. Okay? Your redemption, your salvation, your future deliverance is so massive. It has such massive implications that that is the one event that creation looks forward to. That is the one event that creation longs for and waits. Okay, so that's a pretty good argument, I guess, Paul. Like you're saying that my suffering in the present time is not even going to compare in uh, it's, it's not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to, to us, and we know that because creation longs for the day that you and I, if we are Christians, will be fully redeemed and fully restored. So creation groans, and we hear its heart cry. Um, but that is echoed in the hearts of every human being, and I think we saw this on display with the death of Kobe Bryant just a few weeks ago. I was actually shocked by just how... Um, I guess just how uh, wide and how universal, uh, you know, the mention of Kobe Bryant and his death were. And it was, I think it was a shock to just society at large and to, um, you know, just to all of us. And I think particularly because Kobe was a younger man and he was with his daughter and we all knew him in, from his glory days playing basketball. But we, I think we heard an echo of the groaning of creation in the hearts of people there. I think, I think people understand that, that that's not how things are supposed to be. A man and a daughter going for a helicopter ride are not supposed to, to die as a result of that. that. Their lives were cut short. Death is, shouldn't happen. And, and we heard the echo of the groaning of creation in the, from the hearts of people. But Paul doesn't want to just talk about the groaning of people in general. He wants to talk about the groaning of Christians in particular. Look with me to verse 23. Okay. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Okay. Um, and I want to kind of try and set up a wee bit of attention here. You see, we as Christians have been, we've been given a new beginning. We've been kind of set on a new trajectory. We're headed towards a new destination. And marvelously and graciously, we have been given new life. Okay? And so perhaps we more than others, not because we're better than others, but because we have already had a sampling of the grace of God in our lives, we understand in a keen way that this world is not the way that it should be. This world is not the way that God would want it to be, and this world is not the way that things are supposed to be. And if we're honest with ourselves, then we also understand that you and I are not the people that we're supposed to be. Um... So we groan. We groan alongside the creation. We, we feel deeply the pains and burdens of our heart because of present suffering. But we also know that this is not all that there is, and so we march onward in hope. And so how are we to balance those things? Hardship and hope, groaning and glory, suffering and future salvation. How are we to kind of hold those in tension in the Christian life? Because we know that they're both realities. We know that suffering is a reality. I don't need to make that case to you. But we also know that future glory is a reality. And so how are we to manage that tension and how are we to balance those things? 
For the remainder of our time, I would like to allow the Apostle Paul to do two things. And so this is heading number two, if you're taking notes. Uh, I want him to bring us down from Everest. I want him to bring us down from Everest. You see, if you have finished reading or studying or listening to a sermon series on Romans 8, then you will have just summited the Mount Everest of the Bible. Now, I'm sure there's lots of Mount Everest of the Bible, but this is certainly one of them, okay? And um, because in it, Paul speaks of just glorious certainties and promises and gifts for you if you are a Christian. He promises that you will have a clear conscience because you are no longer under condemnation. He promises to you that you will be able to live a godly life and put off sin because the Holy Spirit has come to indwell you. He says that you are now a part of God's family because he has done the hard work of bringing you into his family. He says that you will inherit all things because somehow you and I, if we are Christians, will inherit what Christ inherits. And he also says that you are perfectly secure because God will not let you go. Now imagine summiting Everest, okay? All the weeks and months of preparation that have gone into that thing and then going up and down the mountain so that you can acclimate to the air. And, uh, and then finally you reach the top and you're taking in the view and you're in awe of just the beauty of what is before you. And you're so satisfied with your accomplishments and you're celebrating with the team that helped you to get there and you're just at the height of life. But eventually you're going to have to come down that mountain and return to normal life with all of its problems and issues. And I think that if you're going through Romans 8 as a Christian, this might be how you feel. Because you're forgiven of your sins. You've been empowered by the Spirit. You've been adopted into God's family. And you're secure forever because of the love of God. But you're like, that's great. But my life, like, it just doesn't seem to add up. And it's yes, gospel is glorious, but my life sucks in some ways. And so how do we manage that? Well, one of the things that Paul's doing in this passage is that he, remember, he's bringing us down from Everest. And what he's reminding you and me is that the Christian is not the one who's always gleeful and joyful and happy and singing in the groaning creation. The Christian alongside of creation groans. And so you and I are not immune from the effects of the fall and the curse. You and I, contrary to what many false Christian teachers say, are not immune from sickness and disease. You and I will struggle with sin and with temptation, and you and I are not promised an easy and comfortable life. That is not what the scriptures promise or teach. But one of the things that Paul wants us to know, and I think this is extremely key, is that our suffering, far from being optional, far from being something that we should avoid at all costs, it's actually mandated for each and every Christian that has ever lived. Look with me to verse 17. And if you're a typical North American, then this will shock you. Because suffering is not seen here as this evil thing to be avoided at all costs. It is actually demonstrated to us to be the pathway to glory. Look with me to verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So if you're a child of God, this is true of you. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified 
with him. Now that suffering is going to look different for each and every one of us. That suffering is going to look different for each and every one of God's children. That suffering is going to come from a variety of sources for each and every one of us. God in his providence will work that out. But as it was for our elder brother, whom we are to copy and to imitate, who is, de- uh, who is called a man of sorrows and a person acquainted with grief, right? We're talking about Jesus, and who at the climactic point of his life died a gruesome death on a Roman cross. And it was only after that death that Christ was able to enter into his glory. Suffering, then glory. Cross, and then glory. That is always the order, and there are no exceptions, not for Christ, and not for the Christian. So what that means, then, is that your hardship and suffering, rather than being pointless and meaningless, is actually your pathway to the world that is free from pain and suffering. Your suffering is preparing you for glory. It is the pathway unto glory. That's not to say that we can't try and make our lives better. That's not to say that we can't try and get help in our suffering and with our suffering and try and alleviate suffering. I'm just saying that the Christian should not be at all costs trying to avoid hard things, but they should be embracing the things that God brings into their lives as a means of good for them because it says in Romans 8, 28 through 30 that God is working all things out in our lives in order to conform us into the image of his son in order that Jesus might have preeminence among us. And if we are to be like Jesus, then we are to be people of the cross, people who bear the cross on our way to glory. Paul doesn't merely want to explain the purpose of your suffering, though he wants to give us hope in it. Okay? Paul wants to give us hope in it. And in order to do that, uh, he's going to take us up the tower. Okay? So this is the third point, if you're taking notes. He's going to take us up the tower. One of the things that I love about the scriptures is that it deals with us honestly and candidly, and it addresses the hard things of life, it acknowledges our pain and our suffering. It recognizes our, 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 just the burdens that we carry and the fears that we have, and it speaks to them. It sees them and it speaks to them. And what Paul's doing in this pa- passage, if we were to kind of think of it as an illustrative thing, is that he is coming alongside of you in your suffering, in your pain, in your hardship, in your valleys, and he's coming down to you. And he's putting his arm around you and saying, follow me. And he takes you and I up this tower, around the spiral uh, staircase. And as we get to the top of the tower, he gives to us a telescope and he says, look ahead. And he wants us to see something. He wants us to see the home which will be ours. And he wants us to see the future which will be ours. He wants us to get a glimpse of the beauty of what is ahead for us so that we can have hope to carry on in the present. He wants us to get a glimpse of that. I'm, go- I'm going back up, but in the metaphor, going back down. Okay, so, um, so as, they, uh, as, as Paul brings us back down the tower into the valley, and as we are about to continue on our journey towards the celestial city, Paul says this to us. Hey, listen, it's okay for you to groan. 
the whole creation is doing it. And if you don't groan, then you're the one who's weird, and you're the one who's odd, and you're the one who's not on the right page. It's okay to groan. But groan with hope. Groan with hope. And as you carry on in this journey, I want you to remember three words that will help you to endure trials along the way. So the Apostle Paul, as our mentor, as our spiritual guide, he says, hey, I want you to remember three words. And we'll cover these three words in the remainder of our sermon here. The first of these words is rest. Rest. I'm not sure if you know this, but rest is actually a major theme in the Bible. You remember that God created the world in six days, and then he rested from his work of creating on the seventh day. And that's obviously um, an indication of chronology, But I think it's more than that. I think what God is saying there is that he created the world and humanity to be in a state of rest. That's where God wanted his creatures and his creation to be, was in a state of rest. We lost that in the fall. We'll come back to that. Um, And then as we move forward to the Ten Commandments, which were to govern the people of God in the Old Testament, the, the Ten Rules or the Ten Laws. Number four on that list was that you shall keep the Sabbath day holy, and you shall not do any work on it in order that you may rest. And as we fast forward to the time of Jesus, he says in a very important and a very well-known statement to the masses, to the crowds, and I think to you and to me, he says, come to me, all who are tired and all who are heavily burdened, and I will give rest for your souls. But then as we look forward to the book of Hebrews, The book of Hebrews says that, yes, you can find spiritual rest in Jesus now, but full, complete, and ultimate rest for you, Christian, is not now but future. We still must strive in order to enter the rest that God has promised for us. And so while it is true that we can experience spiritual rest now, full, complete, and total rest is a future reality. This is what God has created us to experience. He created you and me to be at rest. He created you and me to be people who are at rest. And unfortunately for you and for me, that the moment that we were kicked out of the garden, we lost that rest. And ever since then, God has been working tirelessly and resolutely in order to bring us back into that rest. And there are people here this morning that are just kind of tired and exhausted, and life has taken its toll on you, and you are battered. Others of you are working hard and you're striving, but you're constantly met with obstacles and setbacks. And what the gospel promises is that one day all of this will come to an end. Your striving will cease, your toil will end, you will be at rest from all your labors and struggles, and you will be at rest with God, with others, and with yourself. Um, let me just talk about a library real quickly. Imagine that this room was the library which held the books of all history and eternity, okay? And so I I understand logically, eternally, if it's eternally, this room has to keep getting bigger and bigger, but um, that's okay. So imagine that this room, uh, and each one of the pews is is a bookshelf, and it holds the annals or the history books of history and eternity, okay? And... um, if that were the case, then obviously eternity is going to take up a, a massive 
proportion of the pages of those history books. And what Paul's saying is this. He's saying, hey, listen. The sufferings and, oh, this is volume one, by the way, but the sufferings and the hardships and the pain and the burdens that you are enduring, hey, listen, look, listen. It's contained on page one and on page two. All the sufferings of the present time, all the sufferings that you and I go through, all the sufferings of all Christians of all time, of all places, all the sufferings of the people of God can be captured in two pages. And what God is able to do in the future is this. He's able to turn the page and make it but a blip in the history books and to give you, to you and to me the rest that we long for and desire. There's a really neat quote from C.S. Lewis from The Last Battle. And it goes like this. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, this is what awaits us if we are believers in Jesus. This is what awaits us if we are believers in the gospel. Word number one is rest. Paul says, hey, the second word I want you to remember is freedom. Freedom. Um, We've already discussed much of our present experience, uh, how it is infested with sin and with sickness, Um, how we are just burdened with the realities of living in a broken and fallen world, our bodies are susceptible to weakness, to illness, to failure, and even to death itself. Um, That's why there is a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry. That is why coronavirus exists. Um, That is why there are hospitals in every city, and in some cases, filled to the brim with patients. Okay? And as you live longer, as you advance in age, your health actually um, decreases and gets worse. Your tiredness and exhaustion also become more and not less. And at the end of it all, we go back into the grave, don't we? To to dust you shall return was the sentence pronounced upon humanity in the garden. Which leaves our loved ones in agony in trying to make a sense out of our deaths. Furthermore, I think many of us are aware of the spiritual effects upon us of living in a fallen and broken world. Uh, Many of us are inclined towards anxiety and towards panic attacks. Uh, Some of us struggle with um, depression and despair as they rear their ugly heads. Many of us are completely fearful of the future, fearful of the uncertain and the unknown, and so we can become paralyzed at times. And then there are another group of people that I have in mind here, and that is those group of people who struggle with their physical bodies. And unfortunately, this issue has become taboo in the church for whatever reason. I don't think it should be taboo because um, there's not a sin or a struggle in, you know, the experience of humanity that, you know, is not common. You know, it's not like, hey, if you struggle with this, then, then you're, you know, you're unique or something like that. But anyways, um, people who don't feel at home in their physical bodies, people who somehow wish that they, that, that they did not want the body that they were given at birth, I'm thinking of people who struggle with um, gender dysphoria. I'm thinking also of people who really struggle with their body image, which can make, manifest itself in a number of ways. But, you know, eating disorders might be one way. Uh, an obsession to work out and be at the gym might be yet another. 
Friends, there is hope for you in this passage. There is freedom that is promised to you in the gospel. I mean, there's freedom now, but full, complete, ultimate freedom that is promised to you in the future. Notice the words of this text. It says in verse 21 that there will be the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And it says in verse 23 that we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we're going to be unshackled and unchained. We're going to be set free and released. And we're also going to be renewed and repurposed. There is coming a day when your body will be fully restored, free from all its imperfections and weaknesses. And not only that, but because you'll be given a renewed spirit as well, you'll be fully at home in your new body. You'll be given new curse-repellent, sin-absent, death-repellent bodies that will be perfectly suited for you, and they'll be perfectly suited for the new world. You will be the truest version of yourself that you have ever been in the new world. And you'll finally be free. Free from all sin, sickness, and suffering. Free from all decay, disease, and death. And, And you'll be free for the first time ever to be the person you were created to be, and you will have this elevated capacity to enjoy the fullness of God in a way like never before. You'll be free. Free to be you, and free to enjoy God to the fullest, and free from all the muck that plagues and blemishes our lives in the here and the now. Paul says to us, hey, I want you to remember that rest is coming. I want you to remember that freedom is ahead. And I want you to remember that heaven and not here is your home. Home is the third and final word. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. And it is true that you and I are already adopted. We are already children of God, but the full experience of that is something that will happen only in the future. And so what that means then is that if we're going to be adopted fully in the future, then there is a sense in which you and I are like orphans in the present. Okay? For some of us, that's... And and, and sorry, and I should say that this manifests itself in a variety of ways, but for some of us, that's literal. We don't have a mom and a dad. We don't have a family that we belong to. Others of us, maybe we had a nuclear family, but it was quite unhealthy at home, and so going home and being at home was hostile and hazardous. Perhaps your nuclear family was relatively healthy and good, but um, for one reason or another, you, you feel like a social outsider, that people are constantly judging you, that you feel like you're on the outside and not on the inside. Um, or you could be surrounded by people all the time. But again, for one reason or another, you feel extremely lonely. Maybe you're self-conscious. Maybe you're aware that some other people have things that you don't, and so therefore you feel excluded, whether that be money or family or morality or spirituality. You feel excluded. And hopefully the church is a haven and a harbor for such people. Because true religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, that you care for the orphan and the widow in their distress. And so hopefully the church is a harbor for outsiders. But we know all too well that the church is not perfect and scars don't heal overnight. And each of us have this deep longing to belong. We have this 
deep longing to be at home somewhere, to be on the inside and to be included rather than to be on the outside and excluded. Friends, the reason why you and I feel excluded at times, the reason why you and I feel as if we are outsiders, the reason why that you and I feel as if we are orphans at times is because we were kicked out of our home in the very beginning of this story. We were kicked out of the garden, which was supposed to be our home, which was supposed to be our place of rest, but because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, we were booted out. And ever since then, God has been working in order to bring us back home. And here's the amazing thing. Our journey will end one day. We will arrive at the celestial city. And rather than turning you away and rather than rejecting you, if you are a Christian, here is what is going to happen. The king is going to rise from his throne and he is going to dart to the outskirts of the city. He is going to open up the gates himself and he is going to, with his nail-pierced hands, welcome you home. As one of his own, as one of his prized possessions, he is going to welcome you into that celestial city forever and forever to be the object of his affection and love. If you're a Christian, no matter who has rejected you, no matter who has made you feel like an outsider, you do belong and you do have a home. In part now in the church and in full in the coming kingdom of Jesus. I'd like to conclude with this story. There's an old missionary couple that was returning from service in the early 20th century. They were returning from Africa to New York, and their missionary efforts were a wee meager, and they didn't bear as much fruit as they had thought or desired. And so they're coming back a wee bit discouraged, a bit defeated, and also they were worried about the future, probably because there wasn't anything like a pension back then or health care. And so they're on this boat, and lo and behold, Teddy Roosevelt... The President of the United States is also on that ship, traveling back from Africa to New York. He wasn't being a missionary, though. He was one of, on one of his game-hunting expeditions, and so obviously everyone's paying attention to the President, right? Giving no attention to the couple, and everyone's just trying to get a glimpse of President Roosevelt. Apparently they didn't have Air Force One back then. Um, and the old missionary said to his wife, hey, something along the lines of this, something's wrong here. We have given our lives and service to God for decades in Africa, and we have served God faithfully, and nobody cares anything about us. And here is this man. I know he's the president of the United States, but he's gone on a game-hunting expedition, and everyone's like, you know, like hollering about him and giving him all the attention in the world. Something is not right. His wife responded, I think in a, in a godly way, you shouldn't feel that way. And the husband said, I, I can't help it. It's not right. And perhaps you have felt that way, that, that, that you see your life and you compare it to others and you are faithful to God and, and you love God and you, are, uh, you try to live a holy life and you, live at, you look at your friends who are doing nothing uh, in close proximation to that and their lives just seem, seem easy and comfortable. Let's continue in this story. It's a, when the ship finally docked in New York... 
obviously there's an entourage of people there. The, the, there was a band there, the mayor was there, the press was there. Um, and uh, they were there, obviously, to greet the president. And there was nobody there to greet the missionaries. I mean, I don't think anybody even knew that they were on the ship. So they just kind of snuck away. They found an apartment. And uh, the next day, they were going to find work and figure out what they were going to do with the remainder of their time on earth. The husband that night is just really struggling over this, and he's just really despondent. He's really discouraged. And uh, he says, again, something like, I can't take this. God is not treating us fairly. (laughs) And the wife says, um, rightly or wrongly, why don't you go to the bedroom and tell that to the Lord? And then a short time later, the man comes out of the bedroom and his countenance is completely changed with a smile upon his face and his wife asks, dear, what happened? The husband said this, the Lord settled it with me. I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive this tremendous homecoming when no one, was, no, when no one met us as we returned home. And when I finished, it was as if the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, You're not home yet. Friends, as glorious as the gospel is, to forgive us of our sins, to empower us with the Spirit, to adopt us into the family of God, to secure us forever in the love of God, you and I as Christians are not home yet. We are pilgrims on our journey towards the celestial city. And what we must do, just as the Apostle Paul did, is that from time to time, ponder, consider, and meditate upon our future world, on our future existence in that world so that we have strength to carry on in this world. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. We don't deserve any of this, not in the slightest. But you and your grace have reached out in love towards us through your Son, and so we are just so grateful this morning for Jesus and for the gospel. God, I pray for the believers here. I pray that their hearts would be strengthened and encouraged to know that they can keep going in this life, to know that they can endure whatever it is that life throws their way, knowing that there is a great reward beyond any imagination that is awaiting them. Father, for those here this morning who are not believers, I pray that you might captivate their hearts by the love and the beauty of Jesus, by the the beauty of the coming world which is promised to those who belong to him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.